guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you value this show as a free educational resource and you'd like to show your support, you can do so via Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding service that allows independent creators to get their work out into the world. If you donate as little as $1 a month, that's less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, you'll gain unlimited access to members-only episodes. Last time, I mentioned that I was getting some Words for Granted mugs made, and I placed that order yesterday morning. So, they're on their way. But, prizes aside, I think the coolest thing you get to walk away with is the satisfaction of knowing that you are directly helping to sustain the output of this show. Every little bit adds up. So, if you're so inclined, go to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted to find out more or wordsforgranted.com, and you can link from there. Before we begin, I'd like to recommend another podcast in the Humanities Podcasters Network called Literature and History. In a word, it's stunning. Doug Metzger's survey of literature begins at the beginning of recorded time with cuneiform and chronologically moves forward to the present day. At 42 episodes in, the most recent episode wraps up the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Each episode is filled with literary analysis, historical context, humor, and songs. Really funny songs. Words don't do the show justice, so you just have to listen to it for yourself. I myself have gotten as far as the New Testament, and it just keeps getting better and better and better. All right, now that I've force-fed you my new favorite podcast, let's get on to today's episode. If you're a regular listener of the show, then you know that the last two episodes were part of a two-part miniseries on Greek theater. Well, that two-part miniseries is now a three-part miniseries. We're keeping the theatrical theme going for just one more episode by looking at the evolution of the word scene. If the last two episodes felt too much like an exercise in genre study, I kind of agree, but the good news is today's episode is a return to the more traditional format of the show, which is something I can say at this point because Words for Granted is coming up on its one-year birthday. June 13th, guys. Mark your calendars. Party at my house. I'll see all of you there. And while we're all hanging out by my Olympic-sized pool with our perfect summer bodies, drinking champagne and eating hors d'oeuvres that have been served to us by a man with an absolutely fantastic mustache, we'll be sure to have an in-depth conversation about the evolution of the word scene. But for those of you unable to attend this party, let's have that conversation here. Depending on the context in which it's used, scene can mean a lot of different things. Perhaps the most common sense of the word is a particular sequence in a narrative work, such as a movie, a book, or a play, etc. We can extend this definition by adding that a scene usually takes place in a single location. Probably the next most common sense of scene is simply a view, a landscape, or a picture. This definition is basically synonymous with scenery. Of course, scene and scenery are cognate, and this may lead you to the assumption that scene is actually a shortened version of the word scenery. B. 
Built into this assumption are the secondary assumptions that A, scenery is the older of the two words, and B, that the meaning of scene is derived from the meaning of scenery. Well, this little package of assumptions is all false. The word scenery is not a shortening of, but an extension of the word scene. While scene is first attested in English during the 16th century, scenery, with its ery suffix, does not appear in the written record until the 17th century. When scene and scenery emerged in English during their respective centuries, both words were rooted in the theater. The earliest sense of scenery was decorations of the theater stage, and the earliest sense of scene was a subdivision within a play. Of course, both of these senses still exist today, though the range of their meanings has expanded over time, particularly the range of meaning of scene. Some other modern senses of scene include a subculture, as in the Nashville music scene or the New York art scene, the real-life place of an incident, as in the scene of a crime, or even a public outburst of emotion, as in, Honey, we're in Applebee's. Please don't make a scene here again. I'd like to parenthetically add that the word scenario, like scenery, is actually an extension of the word scene, or more accurately, scena, the Italian cognate of scene. Scenario, which today generally means a proposed event or sequence of events, came into English via Italian in the 19th century, and it originally referred to a sketch or outline of the plot of a play. It still has this meaning today, but like scene and scenery, its range of meaning has expanded beyond the theater. So, as we can see, this word scene and its offshoots all have strong ties to the theater. Like the genre of Western theater itself, the word scene originated in ancient Greece. It comes from the Greek word skene, which, as you might have guessed, originally meant tent or booth. That's what you were going to guess, right? Tent or booth? Wait, it wasn't? Actually, I wasn't going to guess that either. I think that's our cue to take our patented words-for-granted time machine back to the city of ancient Athens during the classical period and drop in on the performance of a play. The year is 429 BCE. This is the year that Sophocles' tragedy, Oedipus the King, supposedly was first performed, so for the sake of our time machine, let's say that it is the year that Oedipus the King was first performed. We've got a few minutes before the play begins, so let's take a look at the scene around us. That's scene in its modern sense, as in the real-life place of an incident or event. First of all, we're outdoors. We're sitting on wooden seats in a semicircular structure that's built upon a naturally occurring hill. At the foot of this hill is a wooden rectangular stage, and behind the stage is a large piece of cloth hanging from a rope. This cloth is called the skene, and skene, like we already said, is the word that would eventually pass into English as scene. So what's this hanging cloth called a skene doing there? It's common sense, actually. 
The Skene served as a backstage area where actors could change costumes and enter and exit the stage based on cues within the script. Behind it were also props that were used to create the scenery. It also served as the portal to a hidden stage. Actors could disappear behind the Skene mid-scene, leaving the audience to infer what was going on behind it. If you've ever watched a scene in a TV show or film where a particular action, such as a violent death, happens off-screen and you yourself need to imagine what it was like, then you've experienced this dramatic technique before. The off-screen or off-stage death dates all the way back to the ancient Greeks. Characters in Greek plays seldom died in front of audiences, but instead disappeared behind the skene to meet their fate. According to Robert S. P. Beeks, the word skene originally referred to, quote, any light construction of cloth hung between tree and branches in order to provide shadow under which one could shelter, sleep, celebrate festivities, etc., end quote. He links it to skia, another Greek word meaning shadow or shade. In Beeks's theory, both skene and skia derive from the Proto-Indo-European root word sky, which meant to shine, flicker, or glimmer. This root word also produced the modern English word shine via the Germanic languages. If this etymology is true, then seen and shine are ultimately cognate. However, there's another substantial theory regarding scene's ultimate etymology. It attributes the root word obscene not to an Indo-European origin, but to a Semitic origin. Now, some of you may be unfamiliar with the terms Indo-European and Semitic in the context of historical linguistics. I hope you find this digression relevant and interesting. Indo-European and Semitic are both language families. A language family is a group of related languages that share common descent from a single ancestral language. The Indo-European languages all derive from a prehistoric language called Proto-Indo-European, and the Semitic languages all derive from a prehistoric language called Proto-Semitic. The prefix proto comes from the Greek word for first or before. So, Proto-Indo-European means the first Indo-European language, and Proto-Semitic means the first Semitic language. Simple enough. The Indo-European languages dominate most of Europe and parts of West, Central, and South Asia, while the Semitic languages are most prominent in the Middle East. England is many thousands of miles away from the Middle East, so Semitic root words in English are rare. Over the course of this podcast thus far, I don't think we've looked at a single word that has a Semitic origin. Foreign influences on a given language usually depend on two factors. The first is geographical proximity. A language is more likely to borrow words from a language spoken 50 miles away as opposed to a language spoken 5,000 miles away. The second factor is conquest. If the speakers of a particular language conquer a new territory, it's very likely that future generations of the conquered territory will speak the language of its conquerors. Historically, speakers of English were never geographically close to the speakers of Semitic languages, and Semitic-speaking peoples never conquered England. 
So this accounts for the scarcity of Semitic root words in English and, of the same token, the scarcity of Semitic root words on this show. However, unlike England, Greece, which is located near the easternmost end of the Mediterranean Sea, historically had and still has many Semitic neighbors and is known to have borrowed a notable amount of Semitic loanwords into its own language. The Semitic languages best known to listeners of this show are probably Arabic and Hebrew, but if this alternate etymology is correct, it's likely that the Greeks inherited the word skene from neither of these languages, but from Phoenician, a dead Semitic language spoken by an ethno-linguistic group of the same name that once inhabited the Levant. The Phoenicians were rigorous traders along the Mediterranean, and the Greeks shared cultural exchanges with them since as early as the 9th century BCE. So, on what basis should we believe that the Greeks inherited Skene from the Phoenicians? Well, first off, it goes without saying that this Semitic etymology assumes the connection between Skene and the Indo-European root word sky to be false. Instead, it traces skene to the Semitic root word shakan, which has derivatives in both Arabic and Hebrew. Now, I don't speak Arabic or Hebrew or have any formal training in either of these languages, so if I've mispronounced that, please forgive me. This root word shakan relates to dwelling, living, inhabiting, or residing. Apparently, we don't have a record of what the Phoenician version of this root word was, but Based on the way that language families work, it's a surefire bet that it did indeed exist at one point. Again, due to the historical timeline of Skene's emergence in Greek, the Phoenician language is the best contender for its Semitic donor language. Okay, so Skene, Shakan. You can hear how these words might be phonetically related, but what does dwelling, living, inhabiting, or reciting have to do with the cloth that was hung behind the stage in the ancient Greek theater? Well, recall that at the start of this episode, I said that the earliest Greek meaning of skene was actually tent or booth. One can certainly dwell in or inhabit a tent or a booth, and a tent in the ancient world would probably have been made out of cloth. Are you beginning to see the connection? It goes even deeper. The theatrical skene was more than just a cloth. Like I mentioned earlier, it served as a backstage area where actors could change costumes and enter and exit the stage based on cues within the script. While actors were concealed from the audience behind the skene, it probably felt like they were in a tent or a booth. It's hard to say for sure if the Indo-European etymology or the Semitic etymology is correct. They both offer a lot of compelling evidence, so I'm not going to stake a claim in either of them. By the Roman Greece period, the skene had evolved into a more elaborate and permanent structure made of stone. In Latin, this structure was called the skenae frons, which literally translates into modern English as something like the stage facade or the stage appearance. The best way to get a sense of the architectural magnificence of a Roman skenae frons is just to Google it. That's S-C-A-E-N-A-E space F-R-O-N-S. I've also posted a few pictures on my website, wordsforgranted.com. 
But if you're driving or doing something where you can't pull up a picture at the moment, then my verbal description will have to do. Functionally, the Roman skene frons served a similar purpose as the Greek skene. It provided a backstage area, a storage room for props, and a secondary hidden stage, but it also provided much more. Its facade was built like the exterior of an imperial palace exhibiting pillars, statues, multiple doors, and balconies. These various doors and balconies offered actors more dramatic possibilities on the stage. They could enter the stage through one door and exit through another. One actor could be positioned on a balcony while another was at the front of the stage. Unlike Greek plays, Roman plays did not rely on makeshift scenery. Rather, the Skene Frons itself was the scenery. Eventually, the actor's stage was raised above the orchestra, thus creating an area in front of the stage called the proscenium, literally, the place in front of the stage. The word proscenium passed into English theater lingo as proscenium. It's not exactly an everyday term, but on a theatrical stage, the proscenium is the area in front of the curtains. The proscenium often supports a large arch that separates the stage from the audience, and that arch is called the proscenium arch. Unlike the uncertainty of its pre-Greek cognates, proscenium is definitely cognate with the modern English word scene. By the time scene emerged in English during the 16th century, it already had many of its modern associations. First recorded during the 1530s, its earliest attested meaning is the subdivision of a play. If you've ever read a Shakespearean play, then you've encountered this word in its original form. Shakespeare famously uses scenes to divide the acts of his plays into smaller parts, and playwrights conventionally still do this today. Other playwrights that were contemporary with Shakespeare used scene in this sense too, but Shakespeare is my default reference for this time period because everybody knows who he is. Now, considering our exploration of the pre-English cognates of scene, do you think this is really the first sense of the word to emerge in early modern English? It's curious that it very blatantly breaks the semantic tradition of its etymological predecessors. Both the Greek skene and the Latin skena referred to physical aspects of the stage, not to subdivisions within the text of a play. Even the French cognate scène, which is attested a whole century before the English scene, originally had this limited association with the physical stage. Even though the sense of scene, meaning a subdivision of a play, is the word's earliest recorded definition in English, the written record isn't always the most reliable source when it comes to recording what people were actually saying at a certain point in time because, well, you can say things without ever writing them down. It's very likely that the more historically conservative sense of scene, as in the material apparatus of the stage, was in use at the same time and even before scene meant the subdivision within a play. The material apparatus of the stage definition appears in the written English record during the 1540s, just 10 years later, but if I had to place a bet, I'd say that this sense of the word was floating around a little before then. You can decide this for yourself.
By the 1590s, the sense of scene referring to the formal subdivisions within a play was expanded to include any place of action within a literary work. This would eventually apply to the kinds of scenes we have in novels, movies, TV shows, comic books, or any narrative works. Scenes' general, non-theatrical, non-literary sense, meaning the place where anything happens or takes place, is also attested by the 1590s. At this point, you may be wondering, what did the Greeks and Romans call subdivisions within a play, since the Greek and Latin words skene and skena, respectively, refer to the physical stage? Well, the Romans didn't divide the action of their plays. Latin plays are written as one continuous block of text with intermittent stage directions and cues. The Greeks, however, did subdivide the action of their plays, and they used the word episodion, which passed into English as episode. Episodion literally means coming between, and that's because the main action of Greek plays came in between two choric songs. The structure of Greek plays alternates between song and action, song and action, or chorus and episode, chorus and episode. Roman theater did not employ singing choruses, so Roman playwrights never adapted this episodic subdivision into their plays. Episodes' modern definition as an individual broadcast of a regular program was first used in the 1930s to refer to radio. Before we veer off into a totally unrelated direction, I think we can bring this episode to a close. All right, guys, thanks for listening. I hope you loved the show. But don't go, don't go, don't go just yet. As always, I'd like to remind you to please follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Words for Granted, and I'm on Facebook as Words for Granted. If you love the show, please, please, please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you use. I know it sounds dumb, but positive iTunes reviews are the number one way to get new people to find out about the show. If you have any questions, comments, criticisms, concerns, or anything at all, always feel free to email me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Okay, see you guys next time here at Words for Granted.